Good evening, family. My name is Mandisa. I'm from the student ministry. I'll be doing a Bible reading for today. We will be reading from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, from verse 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tashish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tashish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tashish, away from the presence of the Lord. We will be reading from chapter 3, from verse 1 to 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster and that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tashish, for I knew that you are a gracious, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that, is, that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it, make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. That is the word of the Lord. Good evening, church. Uh, well, last week I warned you that I'd be speaking in Australian. Uh, tonight I need to warn you that I'll be speaking in croaky Australian. So uh, we'll see how we go. But it's, it's been great. Uh, this really comes to the end of my trip, uh, two weeks in Tanzania, a week or so here. Uh, and what a joy to share my final night uh, with you, the people of God, uh, singing, praising, hearing God's word and having the opportunity to share with you. So uh, please, if you do have your Bibles, uh, have them open at Jonah. We are going to be covering the whole book, but not going through it verse by verse, obviously. Uh, but before we go on, uh, let me pray 
so that we might ask for God's help. Gracious Lord, you have given us your word written and in flesh. May it be we are people who respond to it well in heart and deed. Help us to listen and to learn from your word for us in the book of Jonah. Help us all to better grasp all that it teaches us of your work in the world and the Lord Jesus. Use it to grow us towards fullness of maturity in him. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, the book of Jonah is far more than a fish and far more than a good story. Among the books of the prophets, though, Jonah is very odd. Uh, It is actually uh, not like the others in being poetry, but more of a narrative, a story. And what is more, the prophet Jonah appears more villain than hero. Still, this book has great importance for us, and it answers important questions. What is God like? How much does he care about me? So if you've asked such questions or others like it, this is a book for you. Uh, More than that, though, it previews an even greater prophet and an even greater story. So please join with me as we explore this book. The starting place to understanding Jonah is a little bit of its background and context. Uh, In regards to the dates of this book, we really only have clues. Uh, 2 Kings 14 mentions Jonah's father, suggesting that Jonah operated in the 8th century BC. Yet even then, we can't be sure that that's when this book was written or written for. Indeed, the way the book is placed in the Hebrew scriptures as part of the book of 12 minor prophets suggests it was written for a later period. Thankfully, even if the date is unclear, the message is very clear. Uh, The design of Jonah is careful and clever, showing us this message. Uh, Beneath the simplicity of the story of Jonah is a subtle and complex work. In chapters 1 and 3, Jonah interacts with other people. In chapters 2 and 4, Jonah interacts with God. Yet we also notice, well I hope you noticed from our reading that we had, there is a call to Jonah at both chapter 1 and chapter 3. That shows that chapters 1 and 2 are a unit and chapters 3 and 4 are a unit. So Jonah actually at one level is not one story but two stories. Now some other details to remember when reading the book of Jonah. This is a book intended for covenant people. Uh, You can notice this in that it uses the word Lord, the title, the covenant name for God, 26 times in 48 verses. So it is to those who know and stand on God's promises to Abraham. Promises to give them blessing that they would be a blessing to the world as his priests. But let's consider the first story in the book of Jonah, the story of a distressed prophet. Uh, The book opens with a commission to Jonah as he is sent to preach. Look again at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Uh, This assumes that Jonah is a known prophet in the world. And what we learn here is God's motivation for his commission. There is a great city called Nineveh. 
pointing to its importance. Yet this city is a wicked one. So what is unique and unexpected here is this commission is to Gentiles. It might be like asking at the moment a Ukrainian to head to Russia for ministry. Uh, And this brings us to the first transition in the story, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah acts in disobedience. Instead of following God's commission, he seeks to flee from God, even paying a large fare to head in the opposite direction. The result is a confrontation of Jonah and pagans in verses 4 to 16. Uh, The framework for this confrontation are sailors in a great storm. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The storm unsurprisingly produces great fear. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. The fear is that of the ship being overthrown and the sailors being a mixed crew of different races call on various gods. It seems they have no idea which god is to blame or what the solution is for their situation. The fear is then emphasised with the captain and what he does in verses 5 and 6. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. The captain seeks out Jonah sleeping and because he knows that the more that pray, the better the chances are. The storm, however, rages on. And sensing this is supernatural, they sold the uh, sailors cast lots to try and work out who is to blame. And of course, it falls on Jonah, suggesting that he either knows the solution or is the one to blame. So they question Jonah, trying to discern which God they need to satisfy His answer, though, only adds to their fear. Look at verse 10. After he's answered them, this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The storm increases still more, prompting another question in verse 11 and 12. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah admits that he is to blame, but seeks death as the solution. The sailors' fear remains and they pray, showing that they have some sort of faith. Verse 13, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Here, at very least, these sailors now add Yahweh, or the Lord, to their collection of gods. Still, though, in the end, like the cargo before him, they throw Jonah into the sea. 
So what remains to be seen in the story for the sailors is the fate of these sailors. And look at verse 15 and 16. They took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. As God relents of the storm, the faith of the sailors grows, including sacrifice and vows. The focus now, though, is back to Jonah in a second transition in this first story. We need to consider, though, where Jonah is as the story continues. Uh, Key to this is seeing the movement that has happened in the narrative so far. He went down to Joppa in verses 3. He went down below the decks in verse 5. And now he has gone down into the water in verse 15. Uh, Chapter 2, as the story continues, then reveals what takes place before the famous fish rescue. Jonah sinks to the realm of the dead in chapter 2, verse 2, to the very depths and away from God's sight, verses 3 and 4, where Jonah recalls being as good as dead, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. Now consider the conversation of Jonah in his prayer. Uh, This comes from inside his fishy home of three days and nights. It implies only now does Jonah do as the sailors had done and prayed to God. Still, how ironic and sad that the pagans pray to God before Jonah does. He speaks of a prayer of distress made before his rescue. Chapter 2, verse 2. In my distress I called to the Lord, Jonah says. One that recounts he was indeed facing death. A death interrupted though by God providing a fish as a creature teacher in the same way that God had provided the storm. Have a look again at verse 6. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Jonah, it seems, recounts the lessons learned in verses 8 and 9. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes From the Lord. Firstly, it's a lesson that it is foolish to turn from God as idols are of no help. Secondly, a lesson that thankfulness and obedience is the right way to go. And thirdly, that his tagline will now be God is the giver of salvation. Finally, our prophet Jonah is on the way up as he is spat out onto the land in chapter 2, verse 10. At this point, consider the conversion of another sailor. He too knew God's word for him through his Christian mother. Yet he turned from it and ended up working on board slave ships carrying Africans to America. That was until a storm hit the ship he sailed on. Much like our sailors and the prophet Jonah in our text, it led him to cry out to God and turn to God and eventually he penned his famous song which I'm sure now you sing here too Amazing Grace 
How sweet the sound. You see, much like Newton and his song, Jonah compiles his poem in chapter 2 and his prayer. Now the conclusion of this first story is clear. It speaks of the great truth of the depth of God's grace. A grace that reaches even to a disobedient prophet in the depths. The question that remains is who is this grace for? Who is this deep, deep grace for? Do you think it is not for you? but only for Jews or prophets like Jonah? Well, there's already been a whisper of the answer in that we saw the fate of the sailors, the pagan sailors. But the whisper turns to a shout in story two of the book, the story of a displeased prophet. Again, it begins with a commission as Jonah is sent to preach once more, chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now clearly here there is an echo to the start of the book. Jonah is resent to the great city of Nineveh to preach. Again a comparison. It might be like being sent to Isis to preach. Yet now the emphasis on the message being that it is the one which God gives. So the great fish has obeyed God. But will Jonah... Well, this brings us to the transition, the first transition in this second story. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This time there is obedience according to God's word. Instead of trying to flee from God, he follows God. And the result, though, is yet another confrontation of Jonah and pagans in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 3. The framework this time are not sailors, but citizens in the great city. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. The greatness of this city is emphasised by the task needing three days. Yet, we read only of one day's work, and that being enough. Interestingly, though, consider what we are told of this work in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah had vowed to speak of God as salvation. Yet if that was included or anything else, we are not told. It is not even clear that this is the message that God had given him to speak. Surprisingly, though, this one man and this message brings great fear from this great city. It's seen as the city is overthrown in their fasting and sackcloth. Verse 5, a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. A fear evident even in the king of this great city. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal clothes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. He not only joins in with the citizens, though, he makes this position official in verses 7 and 8. He issues a proclamation by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up all their evil ways and their violence. Even animals are included, as if he is unsure of what is required to turn the situation around. 
The call is for urgent spiritual action, as like the sailors praying in the storm. And also like the sailors, there is faith here evident. Verse 5, again, the Ninevites believed God. What did they believe? Well, that's unclear and the covenant name is not used. At very least, they believed the threat of being overthrown. Yet they also, it seems, believed the hope of God showing compassion and grace. Verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. What remains to be seen this time is the fate of these citizens. And wonderfully, as with the storm, we are told God relents. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But at this point, as much as we might want to know, we are not told anything more of Nineveh. No, the focus is back on Jonah in yet another transition. Now, the fact that the book doesn't end with Nineveh shows there is more to learn from our prophet. So again, consider the movement of Jonah in this second story. He goes up to Nineveh, through Nineveh, but then sadly out of Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. It's as if he is fleeing again, this time to the east and to the wilderness. Jonah ends up in the desert physically, but also spiritually, as if in exile. Clearly, his obedient action of going to Nineveh was not from an obedient heart. And this is proven in the conversation of Jonah in his prayer in chapter 4. This time it is a prayer of displeasure rather than distress. Look at how chapter 4 begins. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. What a terrible word but is here as he explains his earlier actions. It wasn't his fear of Nineveh as a great and wicked city, but the fear of God's great grace that had prevented him going earlier. He even quotes Moses back at God as he gives his reason that he didn't go. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He is so displeased at this point He even again wishes to die, verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But God in his grace again interrupts, providing another creature teacher in verses 4 to 9. To start with, God graciously improves Jonah's makeshift shelter in the desert with a vine in verse 6. And now Jonah is excited. Finally, God is getting it right. He is looking after the prophet. Yet next, God provides a worm, just like he had provided a fish. Look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. The worm eats the vine, and this exposes Jonah to another God-sent wind. With this, our friend Jonah again despairs of life. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. 
He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. This then introduces the final dialogue of God and Jonah in verses 9 to 11, in which God points out the inconsistency of Jonah. Look at verse 11. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? You see, Jonah commendedly had had compassion for the plant, but not for people. People who in ignorance faced eternal destruction. What a contrast Jonah is then, even to the sailors who did all that they could to save Jonah's life. Now, I compare this with the attitude I had as a kid. I'm a little brother, and so which means I had a big brother. And of course, he used to like to pick on me. Of course, I never did anything wrong. I never deserved it, of course. And my first response would be to try to deal with it in my own strength, but he was bigger, he was stronger, I couldn't. So I had another plan. I would tell mum and dad, or threaten to tell mum and dad what my brother was doing. Now, of course, what I really wanted at this point was not for my brother to stop, but for my mum and dad to come in and find out what my brother was doing so that he would be punished. That's what I wanted. That was the attitude I had. And of course, being innocent, that would never happen to me. And of course, this is exactly the attitude that Jonah has towards Nineveh. He thinks he's innocent. He thinks they only deserve wrath and punishment. So Jonah preaches not for change, but for punishment. He acts really only in self-righteousness and self-interest, not understanding his need for grace. And with this, the conclusion of the second story is clear. If the first story speaks of the depth of God's grace, this speaks to the breadth of God's grace. God cares not just for the prophet, not just for the people of Israel. God even cares for Gentiles and their animals. So we have two stories, a distressed prophet and a displeased prophet. If we can put the slide up. And it's here that we see the clever structure of the book. There is a pattern that repeats across the two chapters. We have two eternal truths, the depth and the breadth of God's grace. But the question is, why these stories? That is, why include a book like Jonah in the Bible? Why include it as part of the 12 minor prophets? Well, for one, it encourages covenant people. If they are disobedient like Jonah, God's grace can reach to them. But it also warns and challenges covenant people. God's call on them is to be ignored at great danger. They must take seriously their role to be priests to the world. For Yahweh, the Lord God, as God of the whole world, cares for the whole world. Jonah tells this truth in story form so as to disarm and so make sure it is heard. Jonah is then far more than a great storybook. It's far more than a story for your kids. There are all sorts of possible avenues of teaching. God determining the lot, for example. God as creator uses all creation and cares for it. That you can't escape God, even when you run from him. That we can and need to pray honestly and keep our word. Now these are all lessons we could expand 
And we, but what we want to do is consider what the whole book teaches us about the God of grace. For one, it clarifies the person of God as both loving and just. There is judgment on wickedness, but God relents upon repentance. And this is not inconsistency with God, but God acting according to his character. What we need to do is grasp that this is exactly what we rely on and show it in repentance. Secondly, it clarifies that God is good and trustworthy, an idea that mankind has struggled with since Adam and Eve. Are we any better? Do we trust God as good and trustworthy? And thirdly, it clarifies that God is king of all. He is not an absent creator, only interested in Israel. No, his heart extends even to wicked cities. Does our heart extend to them too? Does this church reflect that in who it ministers to? But think more on the depth of God's grace. Disobedience has consequence, but God offers renewal. Such is the depth of his grace. He calls even to those who would flee from him. You see, God is like the ship's captain. He calls to us in grace. God's grace reached to Jonah in the depth to save him. It can be the same for you. I know I need to know and remember this. How wonderful then to be reminded of God's deep grace. This is what we need if we're stunned at a diagnosis or when you lose your job or your relationship collapses or when reflecting on a lost loved one or others who have rejected God. So for anyone who is feeling like Jonah in the depths, this is for you. Cry out in your distress. God's grace is deep enough to reach to you. He is a God who cares and is to be trusted, whatever happens. And then there is the breadth of God's grace. You see, Jonah holds up a mirror to us as readers and asks us tough questions. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? Are you okay that the people who hurt you might be part of his eternal plan? Compare what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he speaks of God's desire for all to be saved. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. So when we do not speak, are we any better than Jonah? Are we not sitting alongside him wanting destruction on others? This applies to the church as a whole. Does it care for all sorts of people? Indeed, Jonah is a book that encourages action, not so much of copying the prophet, but by its message of grace. Is it we, like Jonah, haven't actually grasped the depth of God's grace on us, and indeed the breadth of it, that we are included, be it South African or Australian? We need to remember that what we rely on we should pass on, that what you rely on, you should pass on. And interestingly, Jonah is a prophet Jesus directly compares himself to. In fact, Jonah is the only prophet he directly compares himself to. Significantly, though, Jesus speaks of himself as a greater Jonah. So what Jonah was a sign of, Jesus is even more. And you can read about this in Matthew 12 or Luke 11. Whatever Jonah teaches us, Jesus tops it. 
Yes, in Jonah we have seen his rescue by a great fish, even a great city saved by questionable preaching. Do you recognise, though, that this is nothing compared to God's work in Jesus? For in Jesus, God provides his only son to bring salvation to a world that rejected him. Jonah fled from his commission, not wanting to go. What did Jesus do? He gave up equality with God and became a servant. Jonah hoped for destruction despite a city repenting. But Jesus, he wept over Jerusalem who rejected him. Jonah went out of the city wanting its destruction or his own death. Jesus, he went out of Jerusalem to die to save the people that rejected him. And what was his death all about? It was Jesus going to the depths of sin. As Jonah was thrown into the sea of God's wrath, Jesus at the cross is buried under the waves of God's wrath. You see, in Jonah, the guilty comes under wrath to save the innocent. With Jesus, the innocent is under wrath to save the guilty. Let me repeat that. In Jonah, the guilty comes under wrath to save the innocent. But with Jesus, the innocent is under wrath to save the guilty. Jesus sacrifices himself to pay what was owed by others. Something that Jesus, uh, Jonah himself anticipated by praying towards the temple, as if to acknowledge that sacrifice for salvation was necessary. Indeed, when Jesus is around on the earth, he speaks strongly to the people of his day. He calls them an evil generation, an evil and adulterous generation. Nineveh had known only a disobedient prophet and yet had repented. Yet the people in Jesus' day had greater evidence of God's grace yet would not repent. And so this is why Jesus said this to them. I wonder what he would say to this church, what he would say to you and to me. For the cross even more fully reveals what God is like. A God who will not allow rebellion and wickedness to continue. Yet it also reveals the depth and the breadth of God's grace. But what of justice? How can God be both gracious and just? Well, it's in that his justice is satisfied in what Jesus does. Romans 3 puts it this way. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Will you hear and receive what is being offered? Will you go on trusting God and living his way? Remember, what was true for Jonah is true for us. We live among people who are doomed to destruction. Do we dare sleep and ignore this? Consider again the searching question which which the book ends in verse 11 of chapter 4. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Now we are not told how Jonah responds, 
But the fact that we know of his story and his prayers implies he shared it with someone, which means in the end he learned at least something of God's grace. But the point is, how will you respond? Do you grasp the depth and the breadth of God's grace? Do you accept it? Will you celebrate it? Will you share it with others who need to know? Certainly it is worth celebrating and sharing. So I encourage you to do that. But let me pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Thank you that you are a God who has relented from sending calamity on us and placed it on Jesus instead. So we thank and praise you for Jesus, the one greater than Jonah. Forgive us where we have not responded as we ought. We also plea for those yet to hear of Jesus, that they would do so, and that you would use us in some small way to this end. Please give us obedient, willing hearts that know and celebrate the depth and the breadth of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, before David comes up, finish just with these words. As Peter writes to scatter believers across the known world, And this is my prayer for you as I say farewell. May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I can pray this because of his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Go then in God's grace that is deep and is wide.